Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure. I have a very special guest today, Jonathan Nelrod, author of Fighting Times, the book, a revolutionary labor militant, international human rights lawyer, retired counsel for victims of police assassination and brutality, among other things. John Melrod is a catalyst for change in the labor movement and beyond. His name is synonymous with political activism, labor organization, and human rights advocacy. Our guest's remarkable journey as a survivor of pancreatic cancer has defied odds and has assisted him with emerging as a beacon of resilience in the fight for justice. In his compelling book, Fighting Times, our guest chronicles his groundbreaking contributions to a myriad of social movements, including the iconic student movement of the 1960s, the historic civil rights movement, the trailblazing Black liberation movement, the empowering women's liberation movement, the urgent call for police reform, and the transformative labor reform movement. Drawing from his personal experiences and tireless efforts, our guest offers unparalleled insights into the challenges, triumphs, and untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to the labor movement. His words resonate with the spirit of change, emphasizing the significance of collective action and empowering workers to demand justice for their rights. I'm so excited to have John on the show today. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. And after that beautiful introduction, I don't know if I can live up to it in the interview. (laughs) I know we, we were just talking off camera before we started. I have to tell you, it's an honor to have you on today, sharing my platform with you, because as I mentioned to you before we started, I had my own moment of being woke, as they like to call it. I had my own moment of a paradigm shift when George Floyd was murdered in June of 2020, and it transformed my whole life viewpoint. I went to five protests and got to see it's I use the this is a weird analogy, but the matrix, the movie, the matrix, when you take the pill and you come out of the pod and you look around, you're like, wow, how did I get here? What is this? I had that moment myself. And I I share that just as a backdrop to ask you that when you look back at your own career as an author, activist, labor advocate, and counsel for victims of police malfeasance, murder, and brutality, what do you feel has changed in our society since you first began your journey? And what's remained the same? That's a good question. And it's a sort of a puzzling and disturbing question at the same time, because I first became active in the 1960s. And as you said, your mother was at Woodstock. And there was a feeling amongst us young people that the world was ours to change, that we had come out of the McCarthy period in the 50s, and that thing, whatever we wanted, we could make happen. We could eliminate things like racism and poverty and war. And it was such a enlightened and visionary period. And it's been a bit discouraging to see what's happened in society. Unfortunately, one of the lead actors is in your state, I believe, the governor of DeSantos. Oh, okay. No, I'm saying that I have so much disapproval of DeSantis. Okay. Florida and moving it back to 1925 with certain signatures of his pen. And I, every time I hear about something new that's coming out from him in the Florida state legislature, it it makes the hairs on my head, as you can see, I'm bald, but the hairs that are there, they stand very high in frustration. So I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. And it's been discouraging 
to see that trend in society and the fact that some of these right-wing forces have been able to create such a wide cultural difference between people. I worked for a lot of my years in factory, and I was around those people that they're now trying to rev up racism and blind chauvinism, ready to go to war. Just it's a really been a retro regressive movement in terms of rights that we thought we had won. I started out, my real political activity probably started around 64, 65 in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the Civil Rights Movement. And they had just killed in 64 three civil rights workers in Mississippi, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodwin. And the Klan had killed them and thrown their bodies into a bog. And it was years before they even found the bodies. And then they couldn't even get the Klansmen who had done the murders convicted because the white jury wouldn't convict them. And they, those civil rights workers were out registering blacks to vote. And today we're fighting again to keep the franchise available to people without creating restrictions and hurdles. Even the basic right of being able to go to the polls is being jeopardized by this sort of move to the right, to conservatism, that's in some areas dominating the political culture. That's I find that discouraging. On the other hand, as we were talking before we went on the show, there's just a movement among young people that is really inspiring to me. So many young people have bought the book and then been back in communication with me about it. In fact, we just did a post on Instagram where I appeared on this podcast, True and On, which is really a youth-based, left-oriented podcast. And 350 books got sold in the week after that podcast to young people. And today, a group of young workers at Amazon who are trying to unionize it called, texted me and said, would you be available? We've been reading your book to talk to us at one o'clock. And I was like, yeah, I'm available because you're giving my life some meaning at this point. So on the one hand, I see the negative direction. On the other hand, I see a positive direction among young people. And I think there's a lot of hope there. And I think they're rebuilding the spirit of the union movement at places like REI, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, Amazon, where they're willing to really take collective action to stand up for what's right. And they don't just believe in union principles like the old days, we want more vacation or better wages. They want a planet that's going to survive. They want free treatment, equal treatment to all who work there. They look at it as an intersectional movement that encompasses a lot of the ills in society that I think you and I would agree need to be changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting, as you were just answering my question, I thought of how much history repeats itself, where there are changes that occurred, and then like Roe v. Wade gets overturned because the conservative Supreme Court decides willy-nilly to put their hand in the air and just change it. Yeah. Leave it over with a wand. And millions of people are being impacted by that. And the voting stuff, I'm appalled that we went from enlarging our democratic participation among the electorate to now going back into a restrictive way. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think the restrictions. And when you mentioned the conservative movement, in my viewpoint, you know how they make jokes and they say like the Lincoln Project says, this isn't your grandfather's Republican Party. I don't think this is anybody's Republican Party. (laughs) I think they're on their way out eventually because they're going to lose enough elections and blow out of steam. That's my prediction. I pray to God I'm right. And I pray to God you're right as well. And I think there's indications that they pushed too far. I saw a terrible story about a woman from Florida who was carrying a baby that was terribly diseased. And one of the illnesses was that their lungs didn't develop. 
and she couldn't get an abortion. It was inevitable that the baby would die within hours of birth. And when the baby came out, the grandfather was holding the baby and looked down and said, wow, this is a perfectly formed baby. But all of a sudden, he said the baby started hiccuping. And he realized it wasn't hiccups. It was gasping for air because the lungs hadn't developed. And within 99 minutes, the baby died. That's a level of cruelty that goes back to the dark ages, that we would make a woman carry to term a child And then her four-year-old was in tears because he saw his mother in tears. And it had an impact on the whole family. And in fact, on society, when you watched her interview on news. But I hope you're right. I think they may have pushed people past what we're willing to tolerate. And that's our hope for the future. I I go for walks during the pandemic a lot because I live in Tampa and I would go walk along the water. And I remember in November of 2021, I had a premonition before Roe v. Wade was overturned. I get these glimpses. And I had a future news program from 10 years ahead pop in my head. And it showed me an army of women marching with baby carriages to say, hey, we're sick of this. We want a civil and just society. Women banded with all these other groups of people from various sections of society. And what the news program showed me like 10 years later was we overcame all these challenges. We're not perfect, but we're at least more informed than we've ever been. And that extremism of the early 2020s isn't here anymore because of certain things that have been safeguarded now within our society through the justice system or whatever. And I saw that and it happens at the flash of a light, but then it comes back later in a download. And I reflected on that. I thought, I pray to God this is right. I think it is. The 2022 election, the midterms, watching that holding on to dear life, praying to God that we don't fall backwards was very comforting for me. It wasn't exactly 100% where we needed to be. And I'm not all about just politics, but I think it's about democratic survival at this point for our democracy. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. And by the way, that's a hell of a good idea of a march, a large march of women with baby carriages. Props have a lot to do with how people perceive a demonstration. That's a good one. I got to admit. It was literally just an image I got. And I'll tell you something. I predicted Biden's election in twenty June of 2020, six months ahead of time with the four, five states that flipped. And I had an image there of a show. And so I get glimpses sometimes. It's just something I get to enjoy. But originally, I was scared of that stuff. And now I'm not. I want to ask you something. Getting back to you, though. How did surviving pancreatic cancer shape your worldview and your perspective on spirituality for yourself? That's a deep and an interesting question. And I've been able to work now with a lot of pancreatic cancer patients. And I wanted more of the book to include that discussion, but there just wasn't enough room in the book. About 80 pages of it are up on my website, which is just jonathanmelrod.com. And it describes my battle. And it was a very spiritual battle. Because the day that the surgeon told me that they hadn't gotten all the cancer and I only had six months to a year to live, I was really, you couldn't sleep, obviously. And I was, I had a young seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I felt like I was looking over literally the precipice of life and death. And I started thinking to myself, this is my spirituality. If When you get embarrassed, you turn red. And if when you get scared, you have goosebumps, your mind has the ability to harness your immune system to fight illness. And I decided that night that no matter what, I was going to give it the best fight I could. And I was going to make it my immune system stand up to the cancer. Now, that's an interesting story from a couple points of view. One of which is we live under what's called the allopathic medical system. And the allopathic medical system was telling me I only had six months to a year. And they said, when I told the doctor you're fired, he says, well, all I can say to you is put your affairs in order. And I said, no, I'm not going to because I am going to survive. And there's a problem with the allopathic medical system is that they don't give you hope. They don't give you spiritual inspiration that you can harness forces beyond what you know to battle this disease. And the 
music writer, Tom Waits, who lives near me out here. And I've met a couple of times I was driving with him and he had been a terrible alcoholic and I had quit drinking as well. And he says, what's your spiritual guidance? I said, I don't know how to define that. I always had an image of my two young sons in my mind. And my image was, I'm going to live to be their father and to see them grow up. And he says, that's your spirituality. And so I think that has a lot to do with how you both lead your life and how you're able to lead your life in terms of your health and your wellness and your well-being. I love that answer, by the way. That's I had stage one kidney cancer. I had surgery to remove it. And it was something that shook me up and still continues to on a daily basis. I have gratitude more than I've ever expressed in all areas of my life. So I completely understand when you're talking about your kids and having that dismissal of traditional medicine to say, nope, I'm doing it my way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I admire that. And I respect that. and I really appreciate it. I, I want to ask you, what motivated you to write your book, Fighting Kinds? That's really tied into the story of pancreatic cancer, because when it looked like I might not make it and my kids were really baffled and befuddled. And they used to say, dad, why did you go to college and not become something like the other dads, a lawyer or a dentist or an accountant? Why did you go into factories where the chemicals are so dangerous? They're now taking your life and you're not going to be here for us. And and I decided that if I was going to be able to ever leave them something so that they could understand why I had done what I had done. And hopefully my grandchildren could understand it. I needed to write my memoirs that explained why I was willing to leave college and go to work in an industrial setting around lethal chemicals that almost killed me because I believed so vehemently that's where I had to be to affect change on the society. We were activist students and we had our voices heard and we protested the Vietnam War and we had a strike of black students because there were only 500 black students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison out of 30 or 40,000 students. And there are only still 500 black students that if we were going to affect the change beyond the campus It had to be among the vast number of working class people who go to work every day, try and earn a living, try and stay alive for their families. And those are the people that were key to really making systemic change to the society. That's what I tried to explain in the book and dedicated it to my children, hoping that they would gain those lessons and be able to lead their lives in a similar way that I have. And I feel like I did accomplish that with them. They're both very active in their own ways and very devoted to trying to make the society better. And that's what's important is that you can leave that kind of legacy and that those kind of thoughts and, and, and dreams with the younger generation. From my vantage point, hearing you explain that makes me think when I marched with BLM stuff, I kept getting from like my own spiritual, I call them my spirit guides, but basically when I meditated on it, I got, you got to be on the right side of history here. You got to be vocal. You got to be outspoken. You got to stand up. You got to be firm and you got to be on the right side of history because the way I feel about it is 20, 30 years from now, history is going to be looking back at this time frame the way we look back at the 80s and 70s and 60s. I want to be on that right side, at least on the record. Anything I talk about or do, I, I correct people now when I'm in social gatherings. And if somebody says something that sounds even approaching racism or misogyny or anything, anti-Semitism, I correct people. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care who I offend because they're offending me. And I want to be on the right side of history about it. I think it starts on an individual basis. And uh, I want to ask you, like, The words never give up, never back down. What does that mean for you in 2023? One one meaning is directly comes out of the cancer experience, which was enough to knock you out of the game. And I popped back up and became involved in the political movement. They had the county sheriffs in Sonoma County 
which everybody thinks is this idyllic wine country county. And there's actually a huge number of Latino families that struggle to survive working in the vineyards and in the orchards and in the fields. And the sheriff shot a 13-year-old Latino boy. And he all he was doing was carrying a toy gun, a plastic gun, in an area that kids played in regularly. And when these two officers shot him, one shot him, the other didn't. They tried to immediately cover it up by saying he's a gangbanger. And he was the furthest thing from a gangbanger because he had been a peacemaker in school between some of the Latino kids who were in the Norteño gang and others who were in the Sereno gang in trying to keep the peace. They tried to malign him from the beginning and that he was smoking marijuana. And that was the root cause, which had nothing to do with them rushing jumping the curb in their car and opening fire. But that incident, even though I was still in the recovery from cancer, said to me, you've got to go back out there and get involved. And I re-upped my bar membership, which I had let lapse. And I became a leader of the justice movement for Andy Lopez. And 2,000 kids had walked out of school in protest of his murder. And I led them up to the sheriff's station, the main building where the county government is. And I got to be honest, I was flabbergasted. They had German shepherds on leashes jumping out at the kids. I looked up and they had snipers on the roof of the building. And I said, this is like Bull Connor back in the 60s attacking kids who were marching for the right to vote. And I said, I got to do something. So I then took on four clients of my own that had been murdered by the police. And that became the next five years of my life was devoted to those struggles. And they were pretty difficult because you were working with families that had lost young children. Most of them had come to this country fighting for a better life. And then to see their kids killed in the country where they wanted to recognize their dreams was just devastating. There was nothing that was going to return any joy to their lives. The best we could do was try and win the civil case to make the police accountable for what they had done. And when you say what motivates you to keep fighting, it's really what society does the worst parts of society that make it impossible not to keep fighting. I've had young people come to my book launches at bookstores and say, what should I do to change the world? And I said, if I was you, I'd go to work at the Tesla plant. Because if you could bring a union there and you could force Elon Musk to deal with workers as human beings, you'd accomplish a lot. And that's what I would be doing if I was younger. So I love that. I'll say this. I was going to ask you, what recommendation would you have for someone listening to this episode right now? If they wanted to change what you already answered that you just said, unionize, help organize. That's right. I'm working with young people who work at Amazon, who work at Starbucks, who work at REI, who work at Trader Joe's, all of them have decided to dedicate their lives to what I call the new union movement, because it's not the union movement of the old days that really was fairly narrowly focused, avoided politics, avoided social and political issues. They embrace political, social issues as part of what they're trying to do. Every time one of them buys the book, and writes to me, I've been inspired. One young woman at Starbucks organizer wrote me, I read a chapter of your book, and then I take the notes so that I know what I should be doing at work, how to organize people. Because when I was working in the auto factory, in I went in 1970, and there was still, there still is today, but there was still almost unfettered level of racism, misogyny practiced by the company, and unfortunately, oftentimes by the union. 
And it became our goal as rank and file activists who put out our own newsletter that was critical of the union when necessary and that stood up to the company, particularly on those two issues of racial discrimination and mistreatment of women in the workplace. We had foremen that were like going around saying, I'm going to get me a piece of ass tonight. And they would be offering better jobs to women if they would go out with them. And we just exposed them in public in our newsletter. And one of them said, I'm going to go after, I'm going to get that fucking Melrod. And one of the foremen said to me, watch out, John, foreman who liked me was a decent guy. And he said, John, Bernie knew is serious when he says he's going to get you. For a while, I was always looking behind my back. And finally, I walked out in the dead of the Wisconsin winter and it was freezing. There was ice on the road. And I got to my car and every window had been broken out. There wasn't a shard of glass left. And I had to drive home like a wind tunnel in the freezing cold. But at least I felt, okay, he's finally taken his pound of flesh and I don't have to look behind my back. How, but, how petty is that? To break your windows to your car to what send you a message that you can't break us, we'll break you by breaking your windows in the cold? Come on, people. That's what kind of defines these people. He doesn't come up to you and say, hey, I don't agree with you. And we can get into a real discussion. He goes behind your back and he breaks out the windows. We had another supervisor named Steve Freeman, who, when he got hired, some young people had actually invited him over to their table in the bar because he was a new guy. And he turned to them and he said, why do you let that go on up here? And they said, what are you talking about? He says, look in that room back there. There's a black guy dancing with a white woman. He didn't say black, but dancing uh, an N-word guy dancing with a white woman. He said, we don't let that happen down where I'm from in the South. I'm a Baptist. And they were like, what? And they were white. And young people in that factory didn't want to be racist like their parents. They come out and say that. We're not our parents' generation. And that same supervisor took a 35-pound air gun and threw it at a black worker, and he called him a lazy MF N-word. Mm. He then pointed later to two black women and put his fingers like a gun and pointed it at them and said, bang, two dead blackbirds. And then went up to one of them and said, I'd like you better if you weren't so flat chested. He went up to a white woman who was in her 50s and he kept brushing against her behind. And she said, stop it. I'm a decent woman. I don't want that. And he wouldn't stop. So she went to the superintendent and the superintendent made him apologize. He still kept doing it. And he'd say to her, I can do this whenever I want. All I got to do is apologize to you. What does that sound like? The media right now with a certain trial that happened just recently in New York. If you don't know what I'm saying with Trump, all that stuff, yeah. the same mindset, it's the same corruption. It's the same misogyny. It's the same despicable, abusive. Just it's abusive behavior. Abusive. All right. And we went after these guys in our newsletter fighting times, which is why the book is named Fighting Times. And we just called them out for what they had done, just straight out, factually. And a movement started in the factory. First, we started with petitions to get rid of the foreman. Then we started to up the ante. And we had some work stoppages where people refused to go back to work after break time, taking real old school collective action on the shop floor. We put out these stickers that we made on a mimeograph machine that were three inches around. And we had a character of him because he looked like a pumpkin. So we had a pumpkin head and under it said, Stevie Wonder Scab of the Month. We started calling the worst foreman Scab of the Month, which is a term for strike rate. And it became so that 27 people out of 30 in his section would raise their hands to go to nurse at the same time. And we made his life unlivable. 
they brought in the Fair Employment Practices Committee and he got fired. He was that's one of the, the two. It has to be done. What? Sounds like that's the way it has to be done. That's the way it has to be done. Then or now. Then or now, exactly. Then what happened was the company went to him surreptitiously and they said, we will fund a lawsuit against the editors of the Fighting Times newsletter if you will get some other supervisors to sue them. So in 19, I think it was 83, the front page of our hometown newspaper said three stewards to be sued for $4.2 million for defamation. And our defense was everything we said was 100% true. So where's the defamation? But when you've got a corporate money behind you, you can take it to court. You can cost us a fortune in lawyers, which I didn't know how we were going to ever pay our lawyers. And it was a two and a half week trial. And we put on 50 witnesses who testified to the factuality of every article. Many of them were the people who had written the articles and letters to the newsletter. And the judge, small town state court judge, unfortunately, we were in state court. We should have been in federal court. And our lawyer made an error and we weren't in federal court, which has many more protections for free speech. And we actually brought in this Steve Freeman's fiance. They had broken up and she had moved out of town and she flew back. And on the stand, she testified and she said, one time when I didn't want to have sex with Steve, he came into the bathroom and put a shotgun to my head and said he was going to kill me. Another time we got in an argument and he followed me into the garage and he picked up a lawnmower blade, hit me in my head, and I woke up frozen to my own blood on the floor of the garage, the cement. And the last incident, she said, he used to raise beagle puppies as a side gig to make money. And he gave me the runt of the litter and I raised the runt and it was my puppy. And when Steve got mad, he picked it up and he snapped the head and killed it. The jury was in tears. The court reporter, who was a woman, was in tears. And I said, this is who was on our side, the jury, because we had picked a jury of all working class people who punched a time clock for a living. And even though the judge ruled as a matter of law that we had libeled two of the plaintiff supervisors, the jury came back and awarded zero damages, which then meant that we took it to the National Labor Relations Board. They sued American Motors who had to pay $230,000 to our lawyers and for our lost wages. So it was a real, that's why we call it fighting times, organizing on the front lines of the class war. It was a real class war day to day. Now, it didn't frighten me. I enjoyed standing up for people and fighting those battles. But I hope your listeners take the time to get the book and read it because it's very easy reading. It's mainly stories, anecdotes about what had happened. It's not a heavy political rap. It's like the politics come out in the stories. This is the way my life went on for years and years. And I- a system that was entrenched. Racism, misogyny, all those things are entrenched. Even in the legal system, if you have a judge that's compassionate to maintaining the status quo, And so you fought that. And I'm so happy that it worked out where you were able to overcome those odds. Yeah. Uh, And then we were elected in the end with all the attacks the company made on us. And they even put out a letter at one point they sent to every employee's home. And they said there's communists at the plant gates. They won't identify themselves, but beware of them. So the next day we put out a flyer to 7,000 workers and said, you see us every day out here. You know who we are. And we listed who we were. And we said, this is who we are. And the company can say what they want, but you judge for yourself. Are we on your side? Are we with you? And the people rewarded us. I was elected steward. 
I was elected chief steward. I was elected department chairman. I was elected to the international UAW convention. And finally, I was elected to the bargaining committee. So the people, the company just was picking up a rock to drop it on their own foot because people believed us. They didn't believe the company. It sounds like that's like McCarthyism, like Red Scare things. Call you communists, call you. They're doing that even now. Socialism. We got to be careful with the social. And I just think to myself, it doesn't work. You can't mislabel a movement. You can't take people's hard earned lives and brush it away just to maintain the status quo, right? You just hit the nail. You hit the nail right on the head because in 1973, I was fired from American Motors for the first time. And they had to actually physically drag me out of the plant because I refused to leave. But I filed a complaint at the National Labor Relations Board. Six months later, the judge issued a ruling and the front, not the front page, in the newspaper in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Journal, the article was, Judge Blasts American Motors from McCarthy-like Behavior. And the judge pointed out, this is the attempted rebirth of McCarthyism. And that was what his decision was based on. It was really quite remarkable. Now, they still refused to put me back to work. And it took me going to the Seventh Circuit two and a half years later to be reinstated. But that was okay too, because I went to work at a foundry and I learned what it was like to be on the very bottom of the working class. It was all black except me. And that's one of the places where I, the surgeon said I probably caused, the cancer was caused. They used to have us wash our hands in tanning solvents all day long. And obviously that goes right through your skin. But I worked there, I worked in a foundry, and I learned what it was like there. And then I worked in a steel fabrication plant where I formed another caucus and we led an eight-week strike. I was active wherever I went. They could kick me around, but it didn't really change what I did once I got back to work. I was an organizer, and that's the way my life has been. I would say that my family background, my mom was a teacher, so she had the teacher's union and my grandfather had unions for the different factories he worked and stuff. And so I think it's so important to have collective bargaining and to have these our rights protected in the workplace. And it sounds like you were able to take a situation that was so dire and so extremely negative for the people where you were working and change, transform things. But you had to make a lot of personal sacrifices. What I'm getting from our conversation today is your sense of pride and enjoyment for all the challenges you went through, even just the can't, even the cancer, but more along the lines of in your career, I would have to say that I'd rather have your perspective and your life experience than to be one of these idiots that broke out your windows or try to act <laughs> preserving this yeah. destructive, defective system that's never going to last in the long run. I think you're on the right side of history yourself. And I think in the future, you'll see that. Again, on my website, but it's also in the book, this defamation trial that I talked about was really eye-opening because we had an affidavit from basically a whistleblower at the corporate offices of American Motors. And he said that Alex McCluskey, American Motors attorney, has had a vendetta against Melrod since he started working here. And he's a member of the John Birch Society, and he often passes petitions on very conservative issues. And he's going around saying, I'm going to get rid of Melrod if it's the last thing I ever do. So they really wanted to get me. And when one of the plant managers was up on the stand testifying, our lawyer said to him, they accuse one of your foremen of being racist. No, our foremen aren't racist. They say that your foreman called a black guy a lazy MF N-word. And is that word acceptable to you? Is that okay if your supervisors use it with their employees? He answers, it depends on the situation. And we're sitting there, did he just say that on the record? And that was the mentality, that there might be an occasion that you could be a sexist, racist, 
homophobic boss, and it was okay. I loved fighting them all the time. That's just perplexing to hear that. And it's like when you put on certain news channels like Fox, my my remote gets stuck on it sometimes. I got to change the battery. And I and I feel like I start screaming at the TV. My mom does the same. I, a lot of people I know will flip through it, watch a few minutes of where they're depicting blatant racism to me in the way they depict in their stories of migrants. Or there's always someone from a minority group being accused of murdering a white person. And that's their whole storyline. If you listen and watch what they have, it's like I watch the tangents. I can't watch more because I feel like it's bad for the brain. But it horrifies me that in our world right now, in 2023, we're literally living in what I feel like a time warp. And I wanted to ask you, and we're running a long time. I'm going to talk about your website and your book. And I want to make sure my audience absolutely reads this stuff and is open-minded to it. But I want to ask you, looking at where we are right now, do you think In your opinion, how should society itself confront racism and how optimistic are you based on your personal life challenges and struggles and successes that true change is possible in our lifetime? I think the way we need to struggle against it is exactly what you told about your story, that you had not been an activist. And when George Floyd was murdered in such a brutal beatdown that it was just impossible to watch you became active. I think that people of conscience, when they see those things, will rise up to the occasion. That's what my belief truly is. Do I think that there'll be change? I do. But people accuse me of being an eternal optimist. I never believed I was going to die of cancer. My brother says, what kind of person doesn't believe they're going to die of cancer when everybody dies of cancer? And I said, I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to allow it to happen. So I'm an optimist. I see these young people. I listen to what their desires for change are, how they want to make things work, and how they want people to act toward each other. And I have a belief that we can, we will change things if we don't let the damn planet burn itself up because we're polluting it. Not we. The major corporations are polluting it still fighting to produce coal and still fighting to produce petrochemicals and cars on gasoline. We know that it's destroying the earth. You're right about that. I hope for the future. I call that my matrix moment when I woke up with the George Floyd thing. It was my matrix moment where I came out of the pod and I saw for the first time that there's a different world than what I thought all this time. Becoming a lawyer like you, I take those seriously. Uphold and protect the constitution and Yada. And then we're a system of equality and we the people means everyone. I made that as a sub tag for my show because after George Floyd, we really do need everyone involved and in, in, in active in terms of the dialogue, the discourse and what needs to be changed in our society. I get very frustrated. We're running low on time and I know I want to respect your time as I'd love to have you come back on again in the future because I think this I'm happy to hear you. We just got, we just scratched the surface here. I know. It's like the tip of the iceberg, proverbially and in reality. No, I'd love to come back because there's a lot more. I would love that. We'll talk more about that off camera, but I would love to have you back on because I think the issues you're bringing up and just your perspective and the things we're discussing, it sheds light on a lot of the struggles that our younger generation and every generation in our country is really struggling through right now. And having a podcast where I actually have listeners and an audience. I'm excited to share this episode with our audience because I want people to think critically and look at these issues the way I did three years ago, just without even realizing. I I think a lot of people went through that as well. I don't think it's just myself. Obviously, our society is transforming itself. Like the army of the baby carriages marching together, anti-gun violence and everything else. that needs. I feel there's going to be a unification of all those in the political movement in the future. And I pray that happens because I think it's necessary. Let me ask you, before we conclude this interview, can you share with our audience how they can reach you, how they can get your book and anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yes, my website is www.jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Melrod, M-E-L-R-O-D. And it's people would find it quite interesting because there's a lot of material that's not in the book. There is like a lot of probably a hundred articles from the defamation trial. There's a section of 
where the FBI was trying to get me fired and interfere with my union activity. So there's a lot on the website. But importantly, if you go to the website, the landing page has a link. And we've decided to reduce the book to a 40% discount because we want everybody to be able to afford it. To me, it's not about making money. It's about educating people and having them read the book. So if they go there and if you go to pmpress.org and you type in capitals the code fighting, you get the book for only about $14. So it's a bargain. And people say it's like reading a novel. It's a page turner. I got an email the other day. I sat down on Saturday and I didn't stop reading till Sunday. I think people that might not think they'd want to read it will find it really worthwhile. And please pick it up and let me know because there's a part on my place on my website where you can get in touch with me. And I love to hear from readers what they've felt about the book. John, I want to thank you so much for having me, by the way. First off, (laughs) I can't even tell you, like, I'm a fan of your work and what you've done and, and everything you're doing. I think that it's so important to have your perspective shared with the masses and I would love to be able to combat personally all this vicious and vitriol and negativity and spewing from all these talking heads that are out there on social media and these conservative pundits that they call themselves conservative. I call them a lot of other choice words, but I'm very excited that to just be able to get this out there. And it's important to me. It's a life purpose for me. It's a mission. It's as long as I have a microphone, I'm going to be sharing this type of information because of how pivotal and important it is. It's protected by our constitution. So why not have free speech out there and alert people that not only is this a historical thing that we've had to fight and overcome through your personal example and experiences, but really when you look at it, it's as time it's, it's important and relevant to our times more than anything else. And you're so right because free speech is under attack right now. This whole book banning nonsense is just shocking. And people like you who've got a microphone and can get to people are playing such an invaluable role in trying to influence people in a good way. So let's hope a lot of your listeners listen to this and some of them pick up the book. That would be great. I just want to thank Jonathan for coming on the show. really love having someone like Jonathan come on and share his personal struggles with society of how he's tried to make positive changes and his example, overcoming pancreatic cancer, willing himself to survive that and then overcoming all these other challenges through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and our modern times. I highly encourage our audience to have their own matrix moment, as we call it, where you get a paradigm shift and you look at everything that's being shared in society isn't always the truth. And there are distortions. When your heart's in something and you really want to change, for example, police brutality, and you want to advance equal rights, and you want to help women, and you want to help Black Lives Matter, and the labor movement, and all these other, the LGBTQ movement, all these things, rights aren't guaranteed, guys. Rights are something that we have to appreciate, cherish, cultivate, and maintain. And that's what I think this interview today is really the tip of the iceberg in in sharing that if you want to be a catalyst for change, you got to be consistent. You got to fight. You got to put your money where your mouth is. You got to put your feet on the ground and march when you need to. And you got to put your fear aside. One of the things I shared with John when we were, Jonathan, when we were talking before we started the interview is when I went for my own protests here in Florida in 2020 with the George Floyd stuff and BLM. And I remember at first I was a little worried about going and protesting. And then once I started doing it, the fear subsides. The fear goes away. And more importantly, it's not about the fear because the other side wants you to be fearful. They want you to be afraid. They want you to back down. But I was going to ask our guest about his epitaph, but I think fighting times is a pretty good choice of words. And words have meaning, guys. Think about where you are now in your life and think about what steps you could take in your own way to make true positive change on all these issues. Because together we can align and make a real difference. You'll be hearing from our guest again. I am definitely going to have him on. There's more material from this stuff I want to share. And I just think it's so important. So stay positive. Pick up Jonathan's book, www.jonathanmelrod.com. I'll have it in the show notes. You get a 40% discount, pmpr, pmpress.org. I'll have all that in 
in the show notes. You put in the word fighting, you get the book for $14. That's with inflation. That's like a macchiato at Starbucks. So highly considerate, guys. Stay positive, stay active, because when you're positive, anything's possible. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.